This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to leave diet culture behind and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 165 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I am so glad to be back from our summer hiatus with a brand new season for you, which is season six, which is amazing because that means it's been five years since I put my first episode out into the world. And wow, how we have grown, how far we have come in those five years. It's been really incredible. It's been such a journey. And I'm so grateful to you all for being there with me for that journey. Those of you who've been listening since the beginning and welcome to all the new folks who've joined us since then. And I'm really excited for many more years to come with all of you, starting with this season, which I am psyched about because we're going even deeper into the world of intuitive eating and health at every size and the anti-diet movement. So every year we've just kind of reached a new depth in terms of how far we've gone into this movement. And I just can't wait for this season. We have some awesome guests coming up, starting with today's guest, who is Bevan Brand Landingham, a body liberation activist and the founder of Fat Kid Dance Party, which is as fun as it sounds. We talked about her journey from a difficult childhood to finding body liberation, the role of joyful movement in self-acceptance, what inspired her to leave a career in the legal field to become a dance aerobics instructor, her ongoing practices of self-love and self-compassion, and so much more. It's a really great episode, and I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Kelly who writes, Hi, Christy. I'm in recovery from anorexia, and I find a great deal of my time is spent thinking about food, recovery, my journey, and everything else to do with eating disorders, even though I'm in a better place than I have been in years. I know so many practitioners like yourself have a history of disordered eating, and I'm wondering how and when you knew that being a dietitian was your calling in life. I've heard people say that obsession with food, body, etc., even in a healthy way, can be a symptom that you're still in recovery and not quote-unquote recovered yet, but I'm wondering if it means that I was meant to help others. I'm an adult with a job in communications and have no background in psychology or nutrition, but I'm not sure that I wasn't meant to enter the eating disorder recovery field. Can you help draw a line between a normal symptom of recovery and an indication of what I should be doing as a career? Thank you so much. So thanks, Kelly, for that great question. There's a lot of rich stuff to explore there. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer, these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice or career advice in this case, for that matter. So this is a really good question. And the short answer would be, I think that it's very individual and maybe something you don't ever know until you look back on your life because hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say, you know, whereas when you're in the middle of things, they can all feel like such a big blur. So I don't think you necessarily know your calling until you've 
started to do it. That is sort of my experience and the experience of a lot of people that I've talked with about career stuff. So I didn't really know. I mean, I don't even consider my calling to be a dietitian, quite honestly. I consider my calling to be an anti-diet dietitian, an anti-diet activist and author and journalist or soon to be author with my book coming out in 2019. So exciting. And like an anti-diet person, basically, not necessarily dietitian because the dietetics field is very problematic, as I'll talk about in a moment. So that is one piece of things. And, you know, my guests and I talk a lot on the podcast about how being obsessed with food and body stuff led us to choose careers in nutrition and quote unquote wellness. But at the time that I was making those choices, my experience was just that I followed my interests all along the way. And what I was interested in was food and nutrition, because of course I was in a place of being disordered about food and nutrition, but I didn't have anyone telling me that it was bad or wrong to follow those interests. And I never judged my choices. So I guess I was lucky in a sense. And I think that's been the case for most of my guests too. Like we made our own mistakes. We made our choices and nobody was telling us like, oh, that's kind of a disordered choice. Are you sure you want to go into that? And we learned from it. You know, we learned along the way. So for me, just really following my obsessive interest in food and nutrition is what led me first to start writing about those subjects in my first career as a journalist. Back in 2003, when I started, I was very much in it with my eating disorder and disordered eating. But it led me to specialize in this field of journalism that gave me some skills that now I can bring to bear much later once I am in a later, well, I say recovered. The recovered versus recovering debate is something kind of tricky. We'll talk about in a minute, too. But anyway, so like that was the first step for me. And then the second step or the the not necessarily second step, there are many small steps in between, but the next sort of major phase, I guess, of my transition into the career that I have now was going back to school to become a dietitian after six years of working in journalism because the magazine I was working for was about to fold. And I realized I wanted to have more career options available to me in case journalism alone stopped being able to pay the bills, which really has ended up being the case across the industry. That's a whole other conversation about media and all of that. But anyway, I made that choice based largely on sort of practical considerations and also based on the disordered eating that I was still experiencing that was making me want to become a dietitian. Because at that point in my life, I still didn't know I wanted to help people recover from eating disorders. And I wasn't totally recovered from my own either. I was still very much stuck in diet culture, which is a form of disordered eating, you know, and I was very steeped in the quote unquote obesity epidemic rhetoric and thought that by getting my master's in public health and nutrition and my dietitian's license, I could help reverse that epidemic, which like I shudder to think about that now. But at the time, you know, I was really in it. So it was a really long and winding path. And it took like 15 plus years to get to where I am today. And like I said earlier, I put out the first episode of this podcast a little over five years ago. And even then, I didn't know that this would be my calling. You know, I was just following my interests and trying out something that I thought I might enjoy doing, which was podcasting, which was a new medium for me, even though I had been a journalist for 10 years at that point. I hadn't done radio or broadcast journalism in that way of my own show, at least. I had been on other people's shows occasionally, but doing this was a new thing and I thought I might enjoy it and I thought I'd try it out. 
So definitely what had shaped all of my interests in going into food and nutrition stuff was my own disordered eating history for sure. And it was not all that far behind me when I started working on this podcast either. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence actually that my recovery grew a lot stronger through doing this work because finding some creative fulfillment with the podcast plus starting to explore my own eating disorder history through conversations with my early guests on the podcast plus then starting to work in the eating disorder field and opening up my own private practice. And of course, processing all of that stuff in therapy along the way, all of that really solidified my recovery and helped me commit to never going back to disordered eating or diet culture again. But anyway, getting back to sort of the meat of your question, I don't think you ever necessarily know what you're meant to do as a career until you try out things that you're interested in. And I don't mean you have to quit your job and go back to school and get crushing debt like I did or anything like that. But maybe you can volunteer for a couple hours a week at a recovery organization to see how you like it. Or, you know, some folks don't have that space in their week, and I totally get that. So what if you make it a job? What if you look for a recovery organization that you could take on as a freelance client? Because you said you do communications work. So could you have a freelance communications kind of side business and do that for a recovery organization and see how you like that? Or maybe look for a new full-time communications job at one of the big eating disorder treatment centers or advocacy groups and immerse yourself in that world that way. So I think if you're looking to see if something is your calling, you do really need to immerse yourself in that actual work to whatever extent that you can and see if you enjoy it and, you know, see if it does give you the sense of fulfillment that you thought it might and see if the work days really fly by, you know, there might be some boring stuff you don't like doing, but in general, you're pretty excited to be there and, and it goes by quick. Or if you learn what you don't like when you observe some of these organizations and zero in on what you do like and maybe on the parts of the work that you enjoy the most so you can figure out where to go from there next in your career. And of course, I would very much advise against doing anything that could make your eating disorder worse, that could trigger you to fall back into disordered behaviors, or that could harm other people. So that probably means not doing things like fitness training at a gym, you know, being like a trainer at a gym or working at a wellness, quote unquote, organization that gives out diets that has you put people on elimination diets or put people on weight loss diets or whatever. Although I know sometimes in training for a career, you might have to do that kind of work in internships or something like I did when I was training to become a dietitian. And that is very much the case for most dietitians these days is that the training involves some fat-phobic bullshit, <laughs> frankly. So I think that's a consideration, too. If you're considering potentially going to school to become a dietitian, you might not want to do that if you're still in a place where your own recovery is kind of fragile and you feel like those things could be triggering. And also, even if your recovery isn't fragile and you're not going to be triggered back into disordered eating by the dietetics world, you might just be pissed off all the time having to do that stuff. You might feel ethically not good about having to work in a place where you're going to be prescribing diets and stuff like that. So that's a big consideration. I think in that sense, going back to school to be a therapist might be the better approach because there's not as much, I mean, there still is some weight bias and diet culture baked into training to become a therapist, but not as much as there is in dietetics and nutrition. That's like diet culture's version of nutrition is the name of the game there. 
So bottom line is that I think it's a really personal decision whether you change careers and go into the recovery field or not and really play around with it and try it out. Try it on for size and see how it sits with you emotionally and how it supports or detracts from your recovery because that's a huge consideration too. We got to think about self-care and our own relationship with our careers as well. And so try to find a career that, that meshes well with your own self-care and your own recovery. So I hope that helps. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you definitely want me to answer your questions and much more quickly than I'm able to do here, come join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. I do an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast for members of the course, which could be you if you join. And there's already a huge library with answers to hundreds of past questions about intuitive eating that you get access to when you sign up for the course. You also get 13 modules of interactive content helping you make peace with food and access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with fellow members for an incredible wealth of support and real-time guidance on your anti-diet journey. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. This episode is brought to you by Mother Dirt. I talk a lot on this podcast about the importance of taking care of ourselves in a kind and compassionate way and how diet culture really pushes us to do the opposite, you know, making us really harsh and aggressive with ourselves. And this is actually true about skincare, too. In our appearance-obsessed, cleanliness-consumed culture that we live in right now, we can easily get sucked into skincare routines that are really tough and not kind to our skin. Whether we're over-cleaning or following complex rituals to try to make our skin look quote-unquote perfect, we need to break the cycle and start treating our skin more gently and humanely. That's why I love Mother Dirt. Their products are super gentle on your skin, helping to restore the beneficial bacteria that your skin needs and balancing your skin microbiome, which helps bring your skin back to its innate balanced state. Their biome-friendly cleanser, shampoo, and moisturizer also smell really great, which is pretty rare in the gentle skincare world. Like the shampoo is made with rose water and has a really subtle, lovely, rosy scent. And the cleanser smells like lemongrass, and it just feels so refreshing on your skin. Right now, Food Psych listeners will get 20% off and free shipping with the code FOODPSYCH. Head over to MotherDirt.com to learn more and get 20% off and free shipping with the code FOODPSYCH. That's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, all one word. Plant the seeds of well-being and nurture your nature at motherdirt.com. We're also brought to you today by LinkedIn. The right hire can make a huge impact on your business or practice, but where do you find that person? You could try posting on the job boards, but can you really be sure that the right person sees the job? Instead, find your next great team member with LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the world's largest professional network, and people use it every day to grow professionally and discover job opportunities. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already there. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on their skills, interests, and even how open they are to new opportunities, so your job gets seen by more of the right people. Most LinkedIn members haven't recently visited job boards, but 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities, so you can only reach them on LinkedIn. A new hire is made every 10 seconds on LinkedIn, and businesses rate LinkedIn 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. Right now, you can go to linkedin.com slash foodpsych and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, all one word, to get $50 off your first job post. linkedin.com slash foodpsych. Terms and conditions apply. 
Finally, we're brought to you today by Masterclass. Imagine learning new recipes from Gordon Ramsay or photography tips from Annie Leibovitz. Now you can with Masterclass. Masterclass offers online courses taught by the best in the world. Each class is shot with cinematic production quality and offers on-demand lessons loaded with exclusive content that you'll only find on Masterclass. You can choose from classes taught by over 35 masters, including Shonda Rhimes, Margaret Atwood, Thomas Keller, Judd Apatow, so many more. Steve Martin is in there. Like, they're amazing people teaching these courses, and new classes are always being added. Whether you're pursuing your passion or developing your career, you'll find a masterclass for you. I took an amazing writing class from Malcolm Gladwell, and he had always been an inspiration to me in my own journalism work. But to go behind the scenes of how he does it was just so inspiring and so helpful as I'm working on my own book. Plus, it was just so engaging and fun that I genuinely looked forward to every lesson and like didn't want to do other work. All I wanted to do was take this class. Food Psych listeners can unlock access to every masterclass for a year right now at masterclass.com slash foodpsych. You'll gain unlimited access to over 35 world-class masters, all for one surprisingly low annual price. That's masterclass.com slash foodpsych, F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, for unlimited access to masterclass. Learn from the best in the world at masterclass.com slash foodpsych. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Bevan Brand-Landingham. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. So I grew up as an only child with a single mom. So a lot of food was watching a very busy woman who had to hold down a full-time job and was putting herself through undergrad and supporting me and raising me. So everything about food was fast and easy. And so my mom was like a wizard about taking a pound of ground beef and turning it into lots of different things. And we also like had fast food as a necessity because sometimes I think a lot of people remind you in the food justice movement that time is a resource as well as money. And when you don't have either of those, fast food is kind of the answer. So really early on, I also started to cook for myself. My mom, I'm a pretty independent person, I think naturally, but my mom really needed me to do that and take over for a lot of my care. So I did start feeding myself at a young age and figuring out what I was eating. And so I think a lot of people see food as love. And like, I never really got that food was more like a necessity. That makes sense. Yeah, it's sort of like just practical, get it done, kind of give you some energy so you can move on kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And what was that like for you to start being in charge of your own food at a young age? Like how old were you when when that happened? You know, I don't remember that age. I know I was doing laundry by myself by the time I was eight. And I was a latchkey kid, so I know I was probably handling food at like six. And I mean, it's really young, but it felt at the time, it just felt natural and right. Like I figured stuff out. I knew how to make eggs really young. I mean, you see MasterChef Junior and like kids can cook. So I was no MasterChef, but I definitely (laughs) handled it. I was like my own nanny. Yeah, no, totally. There's it's amazing what kids can do when they're given the reins to do it. I think people sort of underestimate kids' intelligence a lot of the time. Oh, they underestimate a lot about kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, you're starting to be in charge of your own food, but what about what was going on in, like, your relationship with your body and sort of the other aspects of your relationship with food at that point? Well, I identify as fat-born fat, which means that, like, as soon as I was conscious of who I was in the world, I was already fat. So... I think my fatness has a lot to do with like genetic predisposition. Like if you look at every woman in my family, they're all shaped the same way. 
And a lot of them were thinner when they were younger, but they were also smoking cigarettes. And so I never did that. So I think I just kind of was already like ready in this body as fat. And also when I was a young, young child, pre-conscious, I experienced a lot of emotional trauma and was present for a lot of physical violence. So I think that probably had to do with me eating as a form of keeping myself safe. And especially because I didn't have a lot of early restriction on food because I didn't always have caretakers around because my mom kind of went solo when I was 18 months old because she needed to keep me physically safe. So I think that like getting fat young was a really just like a combination of things. And also I remember being really young and aware that I was fat because people were criticizing my mom for my body. Mm. And I think that's a source of difficulty for a lot of parents with kids who are fat because there's all this fat phobia about like, if your kid is fat, it's your fault. And that fat is necessarily bad, which actually neither of those things are true. And people really just like, I think parents, especially and family members really think they're doing you a favor when they're telling you that your body is wrong or that you need to lose weight when in fact, they're just kind of reinforcing these arbitrary beauty standards that are trying to get you to pay money to feel better. Yes. Oh, so well said. I mean, the the health rationale is such a thinly veiled thing, right? It's like this, this disguise for really criticism about aesthetics. And yes, and that's true, too, in the healthcare field, like the fact that we call now there's this supposed obesity epidemic, quote unquote, when really it's created and trumped up by the pharmaceutical companies, the weight loss industry. None of that existed before the mid 90s when actually a couple of researchers who were really heavily invested and bought into the weight loss industry came up with this idea of framing fatness as an epidemic. And now suddenly there's all this more sort of push to get people to lose weight and the industry has exploded even more. Absolutely. And then, I mean, the worst thing is food justice plays into it and how we're able to nourish our kids and how many kids are in poverty and are sort of like, you know, fat (laughs) from being in poverty. Right. And stigmatized for their size as well, because we know that people being stigmatized for their weight actually tends to result in more weight gain over time because people end up trying to lose weight, trying to restrict themselves. And that always ends up in the body really holding on to every bit of energy that it can because it feels like it's in a famine. So that sort of weight stigma is, you know, not that weight gain is a bad thing or anything like that, or being in a larger body is bad by any means, but weight stigma also has the exact opposite effect that people think it does. Like people think that shaming kids or shaming anyone for their body size is going to make them lose weight. And in fact, quite the opposite. Absolutely. A hundred percent. What was it like for you when you had people in your life shaming you for your size and when you picked up on the fact that they're criticizing your mom for that? Because I can imagine that must have been really painful to feel like you were the source of some hurt for her. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was just no shortage of things that were painful for me Mm. as a kid. Like, I'm a really sensitive person. And that's, I mean, the more I learn about that as an adult, the more I can kind of validate the experiences I had as a kid. Because often, as a child, when you have painful experiences, you're not validated, and your feelings are not cared for. 
And that can be for many reasons, including capacity. So like if your parents are kind of just barely trying to survive and make sure that you have food on the table, then your feelings are kind of the last thing on the agenda. So it all felt bad. I felt like I was a failure. I felt like my body was a failure. I felt like I I couldn't be the person I needed to be to, for my mom. Hmm. And that was really hard. And it was hard too, because like, I remember when we would, because we were so isolated as, um, you know, like an only child and a single mom, we weren't around the extended family. So whenever I saw my extended family on either side, my mom or my dad's side, I remember having these like goals that I was going to lose weight or somehow be more presentable. Mm. And uh, like as a child, having to feel like your body is a problem to solve robs you of the freedom and play you're supposed to have as a kid. Yeah, it really does force you to grow up too fast, like makes you not able to engage with the world in the same way and just be present. Yeah, absolutely. And like, what ends up happening too is, I mean, of course, I was bullied in school, in addition to just like all this family criticism, because you don't, you don't get off the hook with your peers. And uh, we also moved a lot when I was young. And so having all of that bullying, like from from just peers telling me my body was wrong, family telling me my body was wrong, media telling me my body was wrong. I just internalized it all and I became my own worst critic. I was, my self-talk was so toxic and so mean and just like constantly telling myself how wrong and bad I was because of my body slash because of everything else, right? Like, cause it, it all snowballs. So you're not worthy for all the many reasons that you're not worthy. And it really, it definitely took its toll on me. I was chronically anxious, depressed, and stressed out, especially as a teenager. I had multiple suicide attempts and really just like all stemming from like, you know, body stuff. And I just like, I really believe that if I could get thin, it would solve everything. And I'm so grateful. I know now that losing weight doesn't actually solve anything. And it's just like everywhere you go, there you are. So if you're not willing to do the emotional work of unlearning all of that toxic conditioning from bullying and from family and from media beauty standards, then you're just going to be in the same toxic hellscape of your brain. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. That's very well said. And I think it's so circular, you know, this idea of the idea that diet culture sells us is like weight loss is going to make us happy. Weight loss is going to make us feel good about ourselves and therefore like chase after weight loss. And we're going to shame you until you achieve weight loss and then you'll finally get to be happy. But it's actually the conditions of shaming, the conditions of like feeling not good enough and criticizing yourself all the time that lead you to be unhappy and not the weight itself, not the fact of your body itself, but the the conditions that make you feel not good enough. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it sounds like you really were in it with diet culture for quite a while in childhood. Yes, I was very in it. I started my first diet when I was eight years old. I definitely did Weight Watchers before I was 10. And I just, it was a cycle of failure and attempt and failure and attempt. And I... I'm really glad that like I uh, eventually (laughs) gave up on dieting, but it was just like one of those things where like I I actually really stopped dieting by the time I was in my mid to late teens, even before I was into riots, not diets and like body liberation, 
because I felt like such an abject failure at dieting, I just stopped trying. So. Mm. <laughs> right. So it's like, it, yeah, the, the failure of diets, of course, you internalized as your own failure because that's what diet culture does as well as makes us think it's like so genius at that, making us think that it's our problem, our fault instead of that the product doesn't work. But yes. it sounds like, I mean, in a way, maybe that helped save you from further dieting attempts to just feel like, well, fuck it. Like, I can't do this and I'm I'm failing at this anyway. So might as well give up. Yeah, absolutely. How was your sort of relationship with food and your body at that point? That It sounds like it probably wasn't in a great place if you're feeling like, well, I'm just a failure. So whatever. Right? Oh, yeah. My body was a problem to be solved that had no real solution. And so I was just kind of I felt really trapped. I was really desexualized. Like I would have crushes on people, but never dates mostly because I just did not believe that I was attractive and that um, anyone would want to connect with me in a romantic way. I identify as a late bloomer. I didn't even kiss anybody till I was 19 years old. And it really like it was I came out to myself as queer when I was 16, but I did not tell anyone or do anything about it until I was 19 because there was part of me that believed that I shouldn't or couldn't come out if no one wanted to have sex with me. So it was like really like very codependent, like really pinging like my desirability on other people and also my own identity around other people's desirability of me. And so it's like fat for me was not a mutable identity. I couldn't, I tried really hard to hide the fact that I was fat, but like, you know, no amount of baggy clothing actually hides it. But I really, it like really kept me from, living a full life, or I, I kept myself from living a full life by letting it, letting my fat be a barrier to everything that was about me. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you just sort of put off your life until the time when your body wasn't the problem, quote unquote, that it was. Yes, absolutely. And so what changed between like 16 and 19? How did you end up starting to like act on your desires? When I was 19, I just turned 19 years old, I read the book She's Come Undone by Wally Lamb. I don't mm. know if you've read it. I haven't. It has a protagonist who is, I mean, he describes her as like wildly fat, like in a way where it sounds like she's infinifat, like she's just like super fat. But she, then he drops numbers and I'm like, no, that's like kind of regular people's size. But in the book, like the experience of her experience of her body and how depressed she was, I identified so strongly with her and I didn't like it. I was like, I don't like that I'm identifying so strongly with this woman who's really limiting herself. So I made a decision to learn to love myself. And I had no idea where to start. Like, I was just like, I can't be like this anymore. And I need to stop being chronically depressed. And by this point, I was a sophomore in college and starting to make friends in college and really starting to like kind of come into myself. And it was just like, it was like turning a ship in the ocean. Like you can't just like decide to love yourself and then boom, you're going to love yourself. You kind of just got to like start moving in the other direction and eventually you make progress towards loving yourself. And so for me, it was, it started with a decision, even if I didn't know what was next. And I actually, I, at that moment, I turned to dance aerobics <laughs> ironically, which I had only done as like punishment for my body 
early in my life, like as a weight loss goal, like Richard Simmons tapes and things like that early in my life. And I remember just getting some dance aerobics because I knew it made me happy. There was just like something in me that reminded me that like, even when I was using this for weight loss, and at that moment, when I was learning to love myself, I still hadn't given up on this idea that I needed to lose weight. I just had decided I needed to love myself. And so doing those, I remember doing those, the dance aerobics tapes and taking classes at college. And really it did help me access more positive vibes and like, feeling better and happier about myself, not necessarily in my body yet, but like at least like kind of shifting my mood away from being chronically depressed. So that I think mood shifting and like opening up just a little bit to the possibility of self-love. Plus, like, I think I also met the right person at the right time. My first girlfriend is still in my life and is a miracle, like just a really wonderful human being who just, we connected really strongly and that I think sometimes a strong human connection can overcome all of your barriers and obstacles and all of your beliefs about yourself. So again, I don't want it to be codependent, but that in that moment for me was really helpful to helping me come out and own that part of my identity that I had kept so secret for so long. Yeah, I think it's, I think that's such a good point that like, you know, people can help us with those things. Like it doesn't have to be necessarily forever and ever and the codependent thing of wanting to hinge all of your self-worth on another person like ultimately doesn't work but there's something really beautiful about being able to connect with another person and have them hold up a mirror to our goodness that we might not be able to see and that's that's really a wonderful thing I myself also struggled with a lot of codependency in my early relationships and I don't think I would be sitting here having this conversation, being in the state of recovery that I'm in, if it weren't for one of my early codependent relationships where I changed myself so much to be what I thought this guy wanted me to be that I decided, well, he wants like he's a cool foodie and he wants a cool foodie girlfriend who's down for whatever. So I'm not going to restrict in front of him. I'm not going to like let my disordered behaviors around food be a part of this relationship. And mm it really did give me like sort of a kickstart with that stuff. And of course, those behaviors then morphed and sort of shifted underground and were lying in wait for me as soon as we broke up and all of the stuff that, you know, I then had to like really sort through my relationship with food and my body. But I think there was something really magical and wonderful and meaningful about just like having him sort of present an alternative to me and be like, this is how you could be with food. And this is what I love to do, you know? Absolutely. Did that relationship for you start to open up your mind to loving your body, being more at home in your body? Did you start to come home to yourself in that way? No, sadly. Mm. Um, it, it was only like four <laughs> months long. It basically just kickstarted me coming out and like kind of trusting people with that part of my identity. But it certainly wasn't anything to do. I, I kind of like in that moment, in that time was really just seeing it as loving me in spite of my body and not about not willing or ready to hear someone being truly attracted to my body. But when I was 22, I had moved away to law school in Philadelphia. And I like to say that I fell in with the right crowd. <laughs> I met these people who just thought that I was so hot, no matter what my size was. And like, I met other queer fat femmes. I use queer fat femme on the internet as my handle because 
finding people who identify that way liberated me. It was like, oh my God, I'm queer. Oh my God, I'm fat. Oh my God, I'm femme. And like, suddenly I was at home with myself to have these identities and to like see people living out of the closet who are like loving themselves no matter what size they were and kind of like in the fat liberation movement and that it just like blew my mind. So, and, and this was a group of mixed size people. So it wasn't just fat people saying I was cool. Cause I was fat. It was like all of these people. And I just came home to myself. That was when I came home to myself. Ironically, I've seen this happen to other people when they fall into fat liberation too. It's like suddenly you're moving more, you're more free in your body. And like, I lost a little bit of weight. And so because I was just moving more and more free in my body. And it was the first chance I got to tell people that when they told me I looked so good because I lost weight, that it was a non-plement and Mm -hmm. that I didn't want to hear validation for some body size shift, that that wasn't where my value was. And that was also a point of liberation. Yeah, that's huge to get to a point where not only is it not something you're striving for, but if it does happen unintentionally, you can be like, yeah, see why this is problematic is is a huge step. Because I think a lot of people sort of come to it really fed up with diets. And then I've seen a number of my clients start intuitive eating. And obviously, this does not happen for everyone. This is like a, you know, one in whatever. There's many ways it can go. A lot of people gain weight through intuitive eating because they had been restricting and dieting and that's what their body needs. Some people stay the same. Some people might lose weight. And for those who lose weight unintentionally, I think it's really triggering a lot of the time to, you know, then be starting to get those compliments and starting to have the thing that you wanted for so long to actually happen and having to grapple with that around like, okay, well, whatever happens with my body is okay. And this just happened to be the outcome. And I've been working so hard to love my body no matter what size it is and allow it to eat intuitively and move when it wants to. And this is what happened, but I still can't control this. I don't want to like start dieting again. I don't want to start making this, forcing this or whatever, which is I think the the place that a lot of people get into of like, well, if, if I was able to eat intuitively and I lost weight, how much more weight could I lose if I keep doing this or, can, you know, starting to make rules around it, mm-hmm. how they're allowed to eat and move? Absolutely. It's a really tricky moment. I wonder how, like, was it the the sort of strength of that fat liberation activism that you were already taking part in that was able to help you through that? Did you have any moments where you were like, ooh, this is good that I'm losing weight and then had to grapple with it within yourself? I was Really, I took right away to this concept that being neutral about your weight is actually the point of the most peace and liberation, because I knew that like, I had lost weight really easily, but it was probably my lifestyle. um, And that I would probably gain weight again. And so I just really I think I had it in my mind that I was going to be I was still fat, like I lost some weight, I was still fat. And so it's like, I'm still fat. It's fine. Like the more I'm in this for liberation, I'm not in this for like, validating myself through numbers on a scale or weight gain or loss. And that's really just like the thing I always want to drive home with people is like, the more neutral you can get about changes in your body, the more happy and peaceful you will be. Yeah, absolutely. Because our bodies will always change. I mean, that's the reality of being a human moving through the world, moving through life, it is inevitable that you're probably going to get larger at some point in your life. You're probably going to have fluctuations. Your body's going to age. Like all of these things are going to happen that are sort of beyond your control. And so how you respond to that, if you can respond to it in a neutral way, in a loving way that doesn't 
place value on whatever changes happen in your body, the better off you're going to be. Absolutely. And also we're literally all only temporarily Mm able-bodied. So it's just like this idea that people, ageism is such a prevalent force in our society and we're literally all aging. And so it's, it always baffles my mind that people are so willing to buy into body currency, this idea that people's bodies are valued based on size, race, age, ability, and all of those things, and that people still want to buy into it because they're going to cash in now because they're thin and attractive and conventional, and then later they're just going to lose it all because they're going to age. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, setting yourself up for so much pain later on if you really buy into that stuff now. Mm-hmm. And setting up other people for pain, too. I mean, I think when you perpetuate those kinds of beliefs when you're younger, it hurts people around you who are older. It hurts people around you who are not able-bodied. It hurt, you know, it's like it perpetuates the stigma that causes so many people to suffer. Yeah. And it sets your kids up for failure later in life. Like they're going to have to unlearn all of this toxic stuff when they're grownups. Might as well do your work so you can model to them what it's like to love your body no matter what. Yeah, it's like the upstream thing, right? Instead of pulling people out of the river who are drowning, go upstream and and stop the source of the flow. Like whatever this toxic diet culture stuff is that's getting implanted into people that they then have to do the work around later in their, you know, adulthood. Why not start early and not let that happen? Yes, absolutely. So it sounds like you really dove in headfirst to this community then of fat liberation. I really did. It was funny because at the time I was performing as a drag king, if you can believe it. So that's like I'm a female presenting person and I was dressing up as a man on stage. And in that work, I was told by people that I was a fat activist and I was doing fat activism. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. I don't even know what that means. How can I be doing that activism? But because I was being visible and fat on stage, I was giving permission to other people to be visible and fat in life. And I was really blown away by that and really just kind of took to it. And so this was in 2002. So I've been involved in the body liberation movement for a really long time. (laughs) And I've gone through a lot of permutations. I've kind of like flowed with it. I, at the early on, I called myself a fat activist. And then eventually I changed to body liberation activist because body liberation is for everybody and for all sizes. And it's not just for fat people. And that's the thing I like to remind people is that body oppression affects everyone and it's all of our job to help dismantle it and everyone benefits from it. Right. I'm curious how you came to embrace the term body liberation as opposed to fat activism. What did you see or experience in your fat activism work that made you kind of open up to this larger sense of of activism? Like so many great things in my life, it came because of an elder in the community. And I say elder simply because someone older than me who is part of a previous generation of fat activism, I did a podcast for a while called Femcast, The Queer Fat Femme Guide to Life. Mm. It was uh, quite an undertaking. It was like, it wasn't just me having one conversation the whole episode. It was multiple segments. It was very complicated. Uh, I I tried to do that at the beginning of Food Psych, actually. I was like, I want it to be like this American life, but for people's relationship with food. And it was like horrible to edit. And yeah, that ended quickly. (laughs) 
I think future podcasters just need to understand that This American Life has like tens of thousands of dollars per episode to produce. And when you have no dollars to produce and you're putting 60 hours of work into one hour of content, like it has to be a labor of love that really feeds you. Mm -hmm. Because this was what Femcast was. It was a labor of love that I learned a lot from, but then it was ultimately unsustainable. But in one of my first episodes, I interviewed Marilyn Wan, the writer of fat question mark so exclamation mark which is i think one of the early books in fat acceptance now we have shelves of them and before we had like just a couple books and marilyn juan taught me the term body liberation activism and i was sold immediately just based on the description i was like oh yes this totally makes sense let's get everyone involved everyone is on my team thin people in a break room in your office when you hear people talking shit about food you can pipe in and say, I think all bodies are good bodies. I don't think we have to put value on food. I'm glad you're eating something that is nourishing you, or I'm glad you're eating something that makes you feel like it's a celebration. Just some sort of way of interjecting food neutrality and cutting through the clean and dirty eating, cutting through fat negativity. There's so many opportunities because thin people are like secret agents in the body liberation movement. Because a lot of people just assume that because you're thin, you hate fat people and you'll just talk shit about fat people. And that's not really true, I hope, for our thin allies who are listening to this. So body liberation is for everybody. Oh, I love that. I love the secret agent idea. That's really cool. I have referred to it like a Trojan horse. There's a book called... by this guy named Adam Grant. I want to say it, it's not Outliers. It's called like something else that's similar to that. Obviously, Outliers is Malcolm Gladwell, but it's something about, you know, how like social movements start. And one of his points is that, you know, you need the people who are on the front lines, the activists who are really strident and sort of obviously embodying activism. And then you need people who are like the secret, you know, the Trojan horses, basically the people who are going to deliver that message in a guise that nobody would be expecting. And, you know, that those two forces sort of work together to advance the social movement. And so I think that that's with the body liberation movement, very much like the the people who are outspoken fat activists who are just out there embracing their bodies and being fat and living their life and showing that, you know, fat people can do anything is one type of activism. And then, yeah, like the thinner bodied folks at the water cooler who are like, hey, pipe down with your, you know, fat shame or whatever, or like stop talking about foods is good and bad stop this diet culture stuff you know that's another another way that we can spread this message yeah absolutely I also really instead of using language like stop I love to give people an opportunity like you have an opportunity to do xyz rather than just like it's it's more of like a calling in versus a calling out like inviting people to this party to this idea where when you get old you don't have to punish yourself if you gain X amount of pounds, you don't have to punish yourself. Like this is like body liberation is an opportunity for a more peaceful life. And I feel like the more people who get on board, the better everyone gets to be because the less crabby you are because you're not dieting or whatever. Right. Totally. Yeah. And such a good point too. I mean, you're right. I think I flippantly use the word stop, but really it's like, if you can sort of be inviting about it and frame it in a compassionate way, it's going to be a lot more attractive to people probably than just antagonism and making it a question of like, what if life were like this? What if you didn't have to live with so much self-criticism, you know, just opening the door. I was just saying I was recording a listener Q&A earlier today and talking about how so many of us are raised without that 
awareness of how our thoughts are just our thoughts. We are not our thoughts. We can question our thoughts and wonder like, hmm, is this thought serving me or not serving me? Is this making me feel bad or making me feel good? And to sort of inject that into a conversation of like, how would you feel if, or what about this? And opening people's minds into like towards a new way of thinking so that instead of having to just go along with whatever their thoughts were and and act based upon those without any sort of awareness to think about like, what would my life be like if I didn't have such self-critical thoughts, if I gave myself permission to let those go? Absolutely. Your thoughts are one of the most powerful things you have to really transform your experience of life. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like for you, that was really like you made a decision. And I feel like that's that's such a common thread for a lot of people, even if they don't say it specifically or call it out, is making this choice to change how you're relating to yourself, to change how you're thinking about things. And from there, you kind of really dove in headfirst. Yeah. And what's interesting too is that it's not like I dove in headfirst and suddenly I love my body. I just kind of faked it till I made it with loving my body. Like I acted as though I was confident and eventually I became for real confident. But what I realized when I was 31, about nine years after getting into body liberation, fat activism, I realized that I was still self-hating in all these ways that I wasn't conscious of because I thought if I loved my body, then therefore I was done and I had it all handled. And in fact, I did not. I realized I had a coach, a life coach, my first time life coaching. And it was, it just radically transformed my life because in that first call, he asked me to speak to myself as though I was a seven-year-old and be tender to myself. And I couldn't, I just like, the words wouldn't even come. And I mean, it was just like realizing, oh, like self-love is a mountain. You keep climbing. Self-love is a practice. Self-love isn't just like an arrival point. Self-love is literally just something I work on every day. And I can say now that I've really worked on my thoughts I am much less critical of myself than I was before. And that this is something that can happen for everyone. Like you can change your thoughts and change what your default patterning is and develop a lot of tools to like come into your thoughts and tinker with how you're talking to yourself. Yeah. And you went through so much. It sounds like in childhood, you had so much trauma around your body and your relationship with food and and yourself, really, that if you can do that, it's really helpful for other people who are struggling in that place right now. It's true. And also I had IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome, which when I was diagnosed with that, they just explained it to me. And we don't know what's wrong with you. We just know that your digestion doesn't work right. And any medicine that the medical industrial complex gave me didn't work other than Imodium. So I found a a fat positive body liberation health coach to help me. And we did an which was very triggering for me. Like I was like, this feels like dieting, feels like restricting, but it wasn't, it was actually like, I could eat as much as I wanted. I just wasn't eating so that I could see what was affecting my gut. And then I worked with her. It's really interesting, like how like you grow up with food. And like, I think as a fat activist in a riots, not diets place, I had to be very like, eat a sandwich, eat a donut, do all the things. And then eventually came to this point where I loved my body enough and I loved myself enough to work within this food paradigm to figure out how I could use it to heal myself, which is like this whole 180 about food. 
Yeah, that must have been so interesting. And I think that speaks to like what I often talk about with intuitive eating, which is I think a lot of people in diet culture and especially the guys that it shows up in these days as like the wellness diet, which <laughs> pretends to be about wellness and is actually just another diet. Yeah. You know, it's it's like there's this sort of wellness diet twisted version of intuitive eating that's like just figure out what you're sensitive to and cut those foods out and completely sort of negates this whole process that needs to happen before of, like you said, just being like, there are no rules. I can eat whatever I want. Let me break down all the diet culture rules that I've been following forever and really challenge those and show that, you know, I'm able to make peace with all foods. And if you go too quickly to the, let me see what I'm sensitive to kind of thing, it just turns into another diet. It just turns into another form of an eating disorder, really. You know, orthorexia is an increasingly recognized form of disordered eating. And so I think it's it's such a an important point to make that like that process took you so many years and that you had to go through the phase at first of being staunch like so staunchly anti-diet that you didn't even want to futz around with your food you were just like i'm gonna eat whatever absolutely it was this full a solid 11 or 12 years after i found body liberation to doing that work with my gut and my and my body but it was like really listening to my body because i had been learned how to be embodied and i learned how to listen to my body and i learned how to love myself through making choices. And now I always say, use language like I'm choosing to eat in alignment with my body versus I'm choosing. And it's always about choice for me. And it's always about like understanding consequences of there are certain foods where I know the next day I'm going to be crabby. And so it's like, is this a trade-off I'm willing to do? Is this affecting my relationship and my partnership? (laughs) Right? Like, Right. Like a self-care. I'm always saying like self-care, not self-control, right? It's coming from a place of self-care where you want to take care of yourself, take care of your life, as opposed to a place of these foods are bad. I need to avoid these and, you know, control your diet in a way that's very much coming from the rules of diet culture. Absolutely. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm curious how that has sort of played out for you in terms of your relationship with food now when you're thinking about it's really like gentle nutrition component, like thinking about how food affects your body. Did you have any moments where you sort of started to fall back down the rabbit hole where it felt like a diet and what helped you move out of that? It was just that in those first moments where I really had to recognize and be aware, this is triggering me about diet stuff and like really just talking through Cause sometimes your thoughts simply just need you to talk through things for yourself and just to remind yourself, okay, I'm not doing this as a diet. Just sort of like being really gentle and compassionate with myself. Self-compassion is possibly one of the greatest things you can learn, especially if you can learn it and teach it to your kids. Because if someone can start out life being self-compassionate, what what is possible for them? Because being self-compassionate is such a beautiful ground to truly thrive from. And I work on it a lot. So especially around food stuff, because I think it's more about reminding me, okay, this is what serves my body. And this is what is going to heal whatever is, you know, needing some healing. Yeah. So it's more putting the emphasis on the self-care. Yes. Self-care is like a full-time job for me, basically. Oh, same here. I hear you. <laughs> it's, I mean, and like you said, it's something that we don't always learn as kids. And, you know, we we absorb so much from the culture at large that, puts a self-critical voice in our head instead of a self-compassionate one. And I think relearning the practice of self-compassion and connecting with that compassionate voice is an ongoing practice for me too. Like it's something that I 
constantly dance with and, you know, notice those moments where I'm like, oh, I'm not being super kind to myself right now. I'm working myself too hard or I'm, you know, saying things in a harsh way to myself and just kind of noticing that and trying to do something different. Yeah, totally. It's a, it's a dance for sure. So yeah, in terms of your relationship with movement, I want to talk about that a little bit because it sounds like one of the early catalysts for starting to feel good about yourself was dance and reconnecting with this this practice that you had had when you were younger for very diety reasons, very different reasons. And how did that play out? How did that evolve as time went on and as you got more sort of immersed in the fat liberation movement? So when I was young, I did a few dance things. Like I think I was in a baton twirling troupe I just like that and like one other dancey thing when I was young and then we moved so much and because of money like we couldn't afford to sustain doing that and also the more I was like taught how wrong my body was I did not turn to dance ever again so I remember being in high school and seeing the cheer squad and wanting to be on the cheer squad but there was no way I was ever going to try out for it and all of those things just I wanted to dance and I didn't dance because I just felt like my body wasn't okay to be dancing. And when I found the body liberation movement was really when I started feeling more free on the dance floor. And so even though I had done dance aerobics, it was almost always in private, occasionally in a class, but mostly private. So it was like dancing was something that became available to me when my body became available to me through the body liberation movement. And sort of as a a grown-up in like as a, a fat liberated body liberated grown-up I have been very slow to get into athletic culture because it's so fat phobic and it has to be about punishing your body and fat bodies at the gym are gawked at even though I mean it's like so this culture is such a, a hypocrite because they want fat people to be in the gym losing weight, working out, but then also you're going to get gawked at or criticized for being in the gym. So it's, it's a no-win situation. But when I was 30, I started a yoga practice and I found a really, I found a buddy to go to yoga with me and I found a really great yoga teacher who was very body positive and very willing to show me variations I could use to support my body type in yoga because not all yoga poses are available for all body types especially if you have a belly or big arms or whatever, a lifetime of inflexibility to work through. And then from my yoga practice, I started being able to go to the gym. I found a gym that was like pretty body neutral and I had friends who went there and then I started picking up tennis. And then when I moved to LA a couple of years ago, I started going to dance aerobics classes, like in person with LA people, which was like a big <laughs> choice. But I like by then I was such a badass that like I'm like whatever I can go to anything and feel completely fine because I have the tools in my head to like be okay being the slowest in the class and fat and I don't care right but I was in these classes and they were supposed to be for all levels and they totally weren't I was huffing and puffing by the end of what the teacher would call the warm up and I was like, this is not for all levels because I'm a, a person who is fit and I should not be huffing and puffing if you're calling this all levels. And I just started thinking about like who was left behind in this and how can we get more people dancing and just really like taking these dance aerobics classes when I got to L LA just like gave me the idea like, oh, 
what if I taught dance aerobics? What do I need to do to become a dance aerobics instructor? And like, how can I make a safer space for more people to feel comfortable coming into the room and trying this out? So that's actually how I got the idea for my dance aerobics class, Fat Dance Party, which was just the idea that who's left out even in an all bodies dance aerobics class. Oh, that's so cool. I'm curious about the career transition there, too, because like you said, you went to law school. Did you <laughs> were you working as a lawyer for a while and then you decided to make this huge turn into into dance aerobics instruction or how did that unfold? It was much messier than that. So I was a lawyer, practicing lawyer for about 13 years. And my partner and I were living in Brooklyn and she really wanted to move to LA. She had tried to move to LA a bunch of times and a career, other partnerships, lots of things kept holding her back. And then eventually she convinced me to go. And I knew New York was not a forever place for me to live. And I had always thought I was going to move somewhere else, but never thought it would be LA. But she kind of convinced me that there was an L.A. I had never experienced or heard of. And when we came, like we hung out with friends I already had who lived in L.A. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I do know a lot of really cool body positive people who live in L.A. Like maybe there is a different part of L.A. And there there is like the my experience of living in L.A. for two and a half years has actually been very positive. I love it here. There's an amazing fat community here. And it's really just a thriving place to be, which is ironic because we're so adjacent to thin, obsessed Hollywood. And many of us overlap. Like Joy Nash is on the show Dietland right now, which is amazing. And she's part of the community here in L.A. So it's just it's fun to be part of an upstart community that is turning the thin obsession in Hollywood on its head and to be like adjacent to it. And part of it is really fun. That's freaking cool. That is awesome. Oh, to answer the lawyer question. Sorry, I forgot about that. Uh, So I was a practicing lawyer, but moving to California, I knew law was not my heart and my passion. I knew I'd known that for a long time. And I really wanted to try to, to earn my living off of body liberation and activism and my art. And I had been working hard as my side hustle for many years at it. And my partner agreed to support me if I moved out here with her. So I'm the the transition was made possible by another human being supporting me and supporting this work. But it's definitely I didn't expect to become an aerobics instructor. That was like I actually was starting a, a Reiki infused tea business so that busy activists can have Reiki because Reiki has actually really helped me combat depression, anxiety and stress. And so I really wanted to create something that helped to I mean, ultimately, everything I do is about helping people sustain themselves as activists and creating containers for self care that are easy for people. Because I think like the more people I help, the more people they help, and the more the world gets better. So I had to put the tea business on the shelf once Fat Kid Dance Party started taking off. And so now I'm just hustling hard at that. That's so cool. I love that. And I I'm actually with my career feel very much the same way where like, you know, it's helping people recover from diet culture so that they can go on to do what they're meant to do in the world, you know, do like anti-racism work, social justice work, or like whatever it is, you know, to be present and to be, to be able to give what they're meant to give. Absolutely. And I also think dieting takes up so much brain space that as soon as you're able to like stop worrying about how big your butt is, you just have so much more capacity. Yes. Oh, so much brain space. Like how many of these incessant loopy thoughts about your body can you think in one day and what would what would be possible with that kind of space back? It's pretty amazing. Yeah. 
And I'm sure for you, being a freaking lawyer and going through law school and all that stuff probably would have been 10 times harder if you were still fighting your body while doing it. Probably that fat liberation exposure that you had early on was a huge saving grace that helped you do that career. You know, what's interesting is I think I probably just kept the same amount of brain space for law and then just like took all that other space and put it towards helping other people not hate their bodies. So it was like that side hustle just began as soon as I was liberated myself. I was like, more people need this. They deserve it. Let's keep doing this work. Yeah. So it helped you do your own activism. Yeah, basically. It's <laughs> awesome. I mean, that's that's super important. How did Fat Kid Dance Party start out and then how has it evolved? Because I know you're about to launch uh, an online version of it, but I know you started out in person. So like, what did that look like? How did you, how did you get going? So first and foremost, I always like to remind people, Fat Kid Dance Party is for all sizes. It's for anybody who wants to show up to the room because we're all affected by body oppression. But it's called Fat Kid Dance Party because it centers fat experience, which just means that in my movements, I center it around like the capacities of a fat body and also understanding that I provide variations for people, no matter what their size are, to if they want to take it up a notch and have a harder workout, I'll give you a variation for that. And I also provide variations for people to take it down a notch. And I have chairs in the back of the room whenever I teach so that people can work out from a chair because that's it's not a joke to work out from a, a chair. It's a lot of arm work. But basically, I created it from that experience of being in classes where it was definitely not for all levels. And I think that a lot of teachers don't know the experience of being a non-athletic person or a non-dancer. And so having had all those years of staying away from athletics and dancing that I can really, I think, empathize in a deeper way with people who are just like brand new to the dance floor. And I started teaching it just one one time a week at a gym that was willing to take a shot on what I had to offer and just slowly and steadily, I just kind of kept at it. I mean, there were weeks where I got one person out or two or three or some weeks where I had 10 and that was a huge class and just really sticking to it. And then last July, actually almost exactly a year ago from when we're taping this, I was profiled on pop sugar and it went viral. So like the idea of a fat woman teaching aerobics, helping people love their bodies is just something that's very exciting for people and also very unusual. So I think the combination of those two things, like people just shared it all over. And the thing I heard most from people was, I want this where I'm at. And I was like, okay, great. What can I do? So that's what became the, the online version that I'm still working on now. It's just amazing how long things take. Oh, yes. From idea to fruition. But I'll be honest, I've now expanded the class. I teach in two locations in LA. I've been on tour in the last year, multiple cities, and I'm going back to cities. I'm really interested in like fostering other faculty dance party communities so that I can then create a teacher training program and have people regularly teaching in those places. But everything is like a slow iteration when you're a one woman show bra strapping. All <laughs> of it. I like to call it bra strap capital. Oh, it's I like, love I don't that. Know, it's, and so, yeah, so Fat Kid Dance Party is like, I believe a worldwide phenomenon. I believe I am uh, Richard Simmons without the weight loss talk. I am just here to help you live your best life, to create more joy for you and to really like amplify who you are in this world and help you unlearn body oppression and heal from it. A lot of what we do are literal physical healing modalities that like feel like aerobics and maybe look like aerobics, but are actually like getting into your fascia and breaking up 
trauma and helping you feel more joy. I literally do moves that help you feel more joy every class because it's the primary goal. Oh, I love that so much. And people ask often, like, what is joyful movement? You know, because I, I usually use the term joyful movement or movement instead of exercise because that has such diet culture connotations and people really take that in a, an instrumental direction. But like the term joyful movement is super woo woo and kind of like hard for people to <laughs> wrap their brain around. So I think your description here just gives a really beautiful illustration of what it can look like. Like that's what joyful movement is, right? It's it's movement for the sake of having fun and enjoying your body and doing something that feels good. And you're going to feel better afterwards, not because you lost weight or think you're going to lose weight or whatever, but because like literally there's more endorphins and positive juices flowing around in your brain. Absolutely. And there's also physical movements that you can do that can open up your reception to joy. And this is like from a woo-woo perspective, because I am deeply woo-woo. <laughs> Love it. But you know, like there's stuff you can do, like shoulder openers are really good. You'll see there's so many other cultures that have it down in terms of like how to process trauma. I, almost every culture except for Western culture has a movement and chanting or breath practice that helps to, to move trauma through the body so it doesn't land in us. But oh, Americans don't have that. And so we get like bogged over with trauma, we get hunched over, we're not moving in our bodies, and we don't know how to open us up to movement that isn't punishment. Mm. I love that. That's I mean, going back to like your own yoga practice, I'm sure that kind of helped you tap into the possibility of joy. And, and that's Absolutely. very much for me too. what I experienced with yoga, like the sort of early days of my yoga practice. I was just like, wait, what? This is amazing. I felt high after classes. And it was, you know, not this punishing form of movement, but just movement for the sake of movement for feeling good. Absolutely. And I think also part of movement for feeling good or joyful really has to come from your own inspiration and motivation to get there it can't be someone else's motivation like I was punished basically by having an exercise tape put into a, a machine and forced to do exercise as a young person and in the very first paragraph of the terms of use and disclaimer for my video is it is expressly against the terms of use for anyone to do fat kid dance party involuntarily and I just like I can't I, I mean I can't wait for but I mean I know that there will be someone out there who's like, oh, let me get this fat aerobics instructor to get my fat kid to start moving and make them do it. And I can't wait for that kid to point to the terms of use and be like, this has to be voluntary. Oh, yes. Because it's just like one of those things people really think they're helping, but they're actually creating emotional harm by forcing people to exercise. Absolutely. And the same goes for a person like an adult doing it, right? Like I'm sure that, mm -hmm. you know, if you're doing it involuntarily under the auspices of diet culture, like under the guise of, okay, well, I'm fat or I'm not fat, but I want to change my body and therefore I'm going to do this aerobics class to try to lose weight or whatever. That's not in the spirit of Fat Kid Dance Party either. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's so cool. And I always like to say, you know, when I'm talking about joyful movement, put in the caveat because there are folks listening for whom movement of any kind is actually contraindicated at this point where they're recovering from a compulsive relationship with exercise and the best medicine for those folks is to not move your body intentionally, you know, to let yourself rest, to do what you need to do to break up that relationship with exercise as punishment and instrumental. But eventually you'll be able to 
come back to it in a joyful way. And this is the kind of thing that it's going to look like, you know, it's not going to be having to do something compulsively for some number of hours or whatever that you are not able to feel okay about yourself until you do that. But it's more, it's going to be just like what you want to do. Absolutely. Oh, so great to talk with you. This is really exciting. And I'm so psyched to check out the videos and do them myself. I do love a good dance party. And when I do dance videos at home, too, I get really annoyed by the weight loss talk that's sort of embedded in them and the annoying, like, squeeze your buns to make them look better or whatever bullshit. Like, so I'm excited to have an option for myself, too. That's just like fun and exciting and none of that BS. I am very excited to basically be at this forefront of creating a worldwide movement of movement that is just for the sake of movement and joy. And to, I mean, right now we're at fatkiddanceparty.com where you can buy these videos as first set. And then hopefully I'm going to host other instructors doing their modalities and more Fatkid Dance Party and yoga for all sizes and all of the things that can just be available to us when we just take weight loss goals out of the picture. And that's so huge because I think there's so many personal trainers or teachers of various types of fitness that I know who once they come over to this anti-diet and body liberation side of things are like, what do I even do? Like, how do I restructure my practice or do I need to leave this, this fitness work altogether because it just doesn't feel in alignment to do something in this fitness world when my values are so different. And I think you're modeling something that's like how to do fitness in a body liberation oriented way that accepts all sizes and abilities and everything else. So I think it's really inspiring from that perspective too. Yay. I hope that more and more people come to this and know that this is available to them. Me too. Thank you so much, Bevan. It's a pleasure talking with you. Oh, Christy, thank you so much for having this. I told you before, but I want to tell you again, I'm such a big fan of your podcast and I'm so glad it's here. I hope people like and subscribe so it gets to the top of iTunes, all of the things. Aw, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. I appreciate that. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Bevan Brand Landingham for joining us on this episode, and thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical tips to get started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Head over to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. And if you've gotten something out of this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share to help spread the love. Go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to see a bunch of different apps where you can subscribe to the podcast. And you can also pass this episode along to a friend or loved one who needs to hear the anti-diet message. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 165. That's christyharrison.com slash 165. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, as always, and to my Food Psych Programs team, including our brand new community and content associate, Vinci Sui, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, and our transcript assistant, Megan Saichi, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing the show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble, and the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay safe. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Bullies want your food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever went over your friend's house?